0: After, if you have a Bible, let's flip to Mark chapter 1. Let me invite you to turn to Mark chapter 1 with me. If you don't have a Bible, there should be a black hardback in a seat around you. Um, You are more than welcome to grab one of those and flip there if you would like to. My name is Mike Skinner. I'm the lead pastor here at the church. And we are glad that you have joined us for worship. We're in the middle of a series right now on the Gospel of Mark. We have just started, and so we are in verse 9 of Mark chapter 1. Uh, We actually looked at this passage last week, Mark 1, 9 through 11, It's the story of Jesus' baptism. But as we do here at First Colony, we go through books of the Bible slowly and intentionally and methodically. And so we are going to take another stab at this passage looking at a different thing. Last week we talked about the importance of Jesus' baptism for his identity, for how he saw himself as the Son of God sent into the world to save it. We looked at the implications that that holds for our identity when we find our identity in Christ. This week, though, I want to look at something different as we read Um, the story of Jesus' baptism. For many reasons, in the last year or so, as I've studied uh, and I have read and I have written, I've come back over and over again to this passage, uh, to Jesus' baptism. All three of the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, record Jesus' baptism. They all record it in the same way, with these same basic details. Um, And it is a very, very, very important passage, I think, for understanding who Jesus is, for understanding who God is, for understanding who we are. And if you were to actually, I think, Go back and, who wants to sign up for this, listen to like the last year's worth of sermons from me, okay? Um, I think you would recognize and and be able to point out maybe a dozen, two dozen references to the baptism of Jesus. Uh, Because from all different roads, I've been led back and back and back to this one story as kind of a key part of the revelation of God to us. Um, Who is God? What is he like? And so let's read it together, and then I would like to invite you on this journey with me. Mark chapter 1. Uh, we'll pick it up in verse 9, and we'll read through verse 11. Short passage. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. Now one of the reasons I think this passage is so important is because I think this gives us a glimpse of who God really is. In particular, in this passage, you get a, a vision of the triune God. Uh, as Christians, we believe uh, God is triune, that He is he three personed. There are three persons to God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And you see all of these persons in work and action here in Mark chapter 1. And I think this is important for you and I as Christians. And this is really going to be my main argument today. It's important that God is triune. It's important that we know God as triune, as Father, Son, and Spirit. It's important that we understand God is triune, Father, Son, and Spirit. It should and will make a difference in our lives that God is triune and not, not triune. He's Father, Son, and Spirit. A.W. Tozer, a famous Christian author, once said that the most important thing about you is what comes to your mind when you think of God. When you think of God, what image comes to your mind, or what experience comes to your mind, or what emotion comes to your mind? He says that's the most important thing about you because that's going to determine so much about how you relate to God, and how you relate to other people, and how you experience your own life, and your own relationships, and your own experiences. We've talked about this before here at the church. There's an important principle of life that goes like this you become like what you worship. Whatever you worship, whatever you hold as good and true and beautiful, you're going to slowly become like that. I mean, watch the teenager who worships a certain celebrity. Watch them start to dress like them and talk like them and move like them. Or, or watch, the, watch the business person who worships money, right? And watch them start to see everybody and everything in, in, in financial terms, as a, as a human walking calculator. You become like what you worship. And so our vision of God, what we think about God, has huge implications for who we are and the kind of person that we are, whether we think God is distant or whether we think God's close to us, whether we think God is disappointed in us, whether we think God is angry at us, whether we think God is um, far away or involved in our lives. What is he like? How do we experience him? This plays an important part. Now, in Mark 1, 9 through 11, we see these three persons of God uh, acting. Christians believe God is one God in three persons. Um, the son, Jesus, is being baptized. The center of attention is kind of on him. He goes into the water and comes up out of the water. You see the Spirit, okay, of God descend on Jesus like a dove. This is going to be an important image that we'll come back to. The Spirit descends on God like a dove. And you see the Father speaking words of pleasure. You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. Um, This is kind of an inner glimpse of the life of the Trinity um, from all of eternity, so this is what's always happening in the Trinity, among the Trinity, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. But we get kind of a glimpse of it in history. We get kind of a, a, a moment in time revealed to us. The Father, from all of eternity, Christians believe, has always been sending His love to the Son. He's always been saying, "You are my beloved Son. With you, I am well pleased." And the Son has always been receiving the Father's love and responding with obedience. And returning that love back to him. And the Father has always been sending the Spirit to the Son and to his creation, bringing his power and his presence. And here in this one moment in time, we get a glimpse of what's always been true about God. The relationships within the Godhead, within the Trinity. There's echoes here of the creation story as well. So we we talked last week that this word dove, the Spirit descends on Jesus like a dove, has kind of a sacrificial echo to it. The dove is a sacrificial image. Um, That's true, but even more strong in this passage is the um, tie into the creation story. So if you remember in creation, um, in Genesis 1-1, when God creates, God created the heavens and the earth in the beginning. Do you remember the Spirit of God hovered over the waters? As God creates life out of chaos, like we're saying about, the Spirit of God hovers over the waters. Now when the uh, Hebrew people were translating that verse from Hebrew into Aramaic and into Greek, they translated that verse, the Spirit fluttered over the waters. then they added a description. The spirit fluttered like a dove over the waters. In fact, it's very rare to ever see um, people equate the spirit to a dove. It really almost always comes from this creation story, where the dove is fluttering over creation, over the waters, the spirit of God. Mark here is tying back Jesus' baptism to the creation story. Just as creation is a project of the triune God, the Father, Son, and the Spirit, so redemption A recreation, what Jesus has come to do, is a project of the triune God. And again, my argument this morning is it's important. It's important, it's important, it's important that when we think of God, we think of him as triune, as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It makes a difference. It should make a difference. It should make a profound difference in our lives. There should be a difference between someone who believes that there is one God versus someone who believes there is one God in three persons. Christians have a lot familiar with two other religions, two other main monotheistic religions who believe in one God, Judaism and Islam. But we also have a lot different with them in that we throw a big wrinkle into the whole monotheism thing. It's one God, we'll go with you there, but there are three separate and distinct persons, the Father, Son, Spirit. That makes a difference, a big difference, in how we see God and how we act as people who worship that God. Christians should be different people than people who believe in a thousand gods, a pantheon of gods. We believe in one God, in three persons. Christians should be people who are different than atheists, who believe in no God. We believe in one God, in these three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So this morning what I want to do is point out three of the differences that a trinity makes okay, uh, in our lives, and in the lives of uh, our, our relationships, the people around us, how we view God, and then how it will have implications for our lives. So my my argument this morning is this. The Trinity reveals God as true, as good, and as beautiful. This idea that God is one in three persons reveals God as true, good, and beautiful. If you have your scriptures, flip with me to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1. We'll go through these one by one. So the first, the Trinity reveals God as true. Genesis chapter 1 very beginning of your Bible, just a hint, Christians believe the Trinity is not something that we have made up about God, and this is an important thing in thinking about the Trinity. Um, Christians believe the Trinity is how God actually exists. Um, this is not just how God has decided to act in our world, or in history, or in creation, but from all of eternity, this is how God has been. He's always existed um, in this relationship within himself, these three people. In a sense, you can say that God is community, We might not have ever thought about it like this, but before the world even existed, you had a community of people. You had a relationship inside of God himself, the Father relating to the Son, relating to the Spirit, all giving to each other, serving one another, loving one another, this mutual interdependency between persons. The life of the triune God. It's not just how he acts in history. It's how he exists in reality from all of eternity. Um, So the kind of essence of existence, who God is, is unity among diversity. Three in one. One in three. Unity from diversity. And so this God decides to create. Okay, And the triune God is revealed as true in that God is community. He creates in verse 27. um, And then he says this about humankind. (laughs) So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Man and female, he created them. This first man in Genesis 1.27 is not male. It's humankind, okay? God created human beings. He created you and I as a species, and he created us in his image. Now, as we read this verse, it's important, again, to remember, as Christians, we believe God is triune. So when God creates human beings, God is not lonely and isolated. That would not be a triune picture of God. To imagine him as lonely and isolated. And when God creates human beings in his image, he does not create them as or to be lonely or isolated people. You see this even in the creation story. He creates human beings and within humanity itself are two genders. Who are both different from each other. Male and female. Yet together they comprise humanity. Unity among diversity. Sometimes we think of God as distant from us. Um, We think of him as this kind of single figure isolated from us, far away. And we have to be reminded and remind ourselves constantly that this is not a Christian view of who God is. God is one who always relates, always has been relating to himself and to his creation. The scriptures are full of stories of God in and among the messy human drama details of life. God is constantly among us, always to be found in the most surprising places, through the most surprising people. And that's what you'd expect of a triune God, who's for all of eternity existed in community, existed in relationships. You and I are created to be in relationships, in community with God and with one another. Just as God is not lonely and isolated, neither are you and I called to be lonely and isolated. You would not expect that from human beings created in the image of the triune God. We are created to find life, true life, deep life with other people. Um, We need to get out of our minds that there is this ideal human being that we can somehow attain to. If we get the right skill sets and kind of work on our weaknesses and increase our strengths, that we can become all that we need. You will never be enough for you. You will always need other people around you to be all that God created you to be. It's not a problem in God's design. This is part of God's design. We were created to find community, to have a unity among diversity. Even from the beginning, male and female, he created them. Um, This is one of the things I think the church has not always done a great job of. We try to find this kind of perfect human being, and we end up excluding other types of human beings. Um, And so it's important as a church community that we have people of all ages. Because there's no one perfect age for a human being. If it is, I'm open to options, right? I mean, is it 18 years old? They're kind of... Really stupid people? Is it 26-year-olds? I'm kind of partial to them. I think they're pretty wise. I'm 26. Is it uh, you know 40-year-olds? I mean, no comment. Uh, is it 60, 65-year-olds? What's the perfect age? Maybe the unity that occurs when the diverse groups of ages comes together brings all that God's people need. Different skills, different perspectives, different opinions. Or what abilities is God after more science people, more liberal arts people, What? Um, tall people, short people, fast people, slow people, big people, small people. All of them come together. God's not looking for one specific type. In particular, one of my kind of pet peeves is how the church has sometimes excluded people with special needs from its community.
1: Yeah.
0: Because they don't have the same abilities as we do. And we have a hard time grappling with what they bring to the table. But maybe it's important for there to be people who can't talk. And you can't speak. And you can't control what they say or what they do. Even though that makes our lives messy. And even though that makes our worship services messy. Yeah. Maybe they have something to teach us.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Maybe it's together, all of us together, with all of our, our our diversities, with all of our abilities and disabilities. Maybe it's together that we find truth and wholeness and health. God has revealed us true through the Trinity. This is how he's always been. And this is how our world exists. It exists to be um, found, to, for life to be found in community with God and with one another. Um, the Trinity also reveals God as good. So if you have your Bibles, flip with me to 1 John chapter 4. First John chapter 4, it's going to be in the New Testament towards the end of your Bible. If you're on the black hardbacks, page 1023. The Triune God is revealed as true, as community and relationship with Himself and the world. The Triune God is also revealed as good, and the fact that He is love. He's defined by love. His essence and character and nature is love. Look at verse four or chapter four, verse seven through twelve with me. First John four seven through twelve. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins, to be the sacrifice for our sins, beloved. If God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and His love is perfected in us. The Trinity reveals the the, the meaning of this statement to its deepest and truest effect: that God is love, by His essence, by His nature, His very character, the deepest, most truest thing about God. Is that he is love. Because from all of eternity he's existed in this relationship of love, self-glorification, self-service. Where the Father has loved the Son and the Spirit. And the Son has returned that love to the Father and the Spirit. And the Spirit has loved the Father and the Son. And they've existed in this kind of, what some Christians would call, dance. This eternal dance. God, for Christians, is not this static, unmoving thing. It's this relationship. These three people. Even before we were around, loving one another, infinitely happy in one another. This is why we might say that love characterizes God. Because before we were even around, the one truest thing about God was love. He loved himself. The Father loved the Son and the Spirit. And the Son loved the Father and the Spirit. And the Spirit loved the Father and the Son. This is the deepest, truest thing about God. Love. Love. And for you and I, John says, if you want to know what love really is, what it really looks like spelled out, look at the cross. This is what it looks like. It looks like self-giving, giving giving of yourself for somebody else. What it looks like for God to love us is for him to give his own life for us, that we might live through him. And John says, again, you become like what you worship. If you're an unloving person, it's really hard to believe that you know this God of love. If you're unwilling to give love to other people, it's really hard to believe that you have really received this love from God. This love that that defines God. God is love, John says. Uh, You might say God, the Trinity, is this infinite honeymoon phase. So I don't know if you're familiar with the honeymoon phase, okay, or or in this relationship where um, you are with another person and there's this period of time where that other person can do no wrong, right? And maybe your friends can see the wrong that they're doing, (laughs) But you cannot see. I mean, you are zeroed in. This is God's perfect person, okay? You are, I mean, absolutely smitten with this person. You're in love with this person. They could do no wrong. And then we all know what happens after the honeymoon phase ends. You start to notice there are some annoying things about this person. Some things I really don't like about this person. Imagine the Trinity, though, as a relationship where that phase never ended infinitely profoundly eternally happy in and among themselves the father satisfied with the son and the spirit the spirit satisfied with the father and the son the son satisfied with the father and the spirit infinite eternal love this is who God is Um, God is not angry God is not disappointed At times in history, God gets angry and God gets disappointed, but God isn't those things in the same way he is love. God is only angry or disappointed because certain things happen. Does that make sense? Um, So God can only be sad when something he loves goes out of bounds. Something he loves, something bad happens, something he loves. In the creation, in the flood story, in Genesis 6, we're told that God gets sad when he sees all the evil that has invaded his creation. But God's sadness only makes sense inside of his love. You only get sad about things you care about. I'm not sad if a sports team loses that I have no, I'm not following at all, right? I get sad when a team that I love loses. Like the Aggies, twice. <laughs>
1: <laughs> what about the Texans? We're all grieving.
0: Texans, uh, they, do, they didn't draft the Aggies, so they, uh, they're dead to me. Uh, <laughs> or anger, right? God is not infinitely angry. That's not a part of his essence, his character, his nature. He gets angry, but he gets angry because he loves. You only get angry at things that you love. His anger has to be understood inside of, as a part of, as a reaction of his love for his creation. Oftentimes we get pictures of God where God is angry or God is destructive. God is out to destroy and to kill. God is ready to pounce and condemn you. And the Trinity reminds us this is not who God truly is. God's love is his eternal attribute. Um, If we want to use like big words or big boy words uh, this morning, um, his anger and his sadness, those are contingent attributes. They only exist because of certain things, because of rebellion, because of sin. God's love, though, exists because he exists. That's who he is. He loves. We might say it like this. God doesn't do loving things. Everything God does is loving, even the things he does out of anger and out of sadness. Even his judgments are done in the purpose of his overall love for his creation, for himself and for that which he has created. We might ask, why does God create? Why do we exist? We might ask the question in a Christian way. Why does a triune God create a world? Why does a triune God create you and I? And the answer, I think, would be different for the different visions of God that you have. If you have an isolated, lonely God, he might create the world to get something that he might not otherwise have. If you have a pantheon of gods, if you have a thousand different gods, they might create the world as part of an argument or a fight or a competition with each other. In fact, different religions have posited both of these these views of creation, these views of our existence. A triune God, though, it doesn't make sense. God doesn't create the world to receive love or companionship. He has that in himself perfectly. If he did, he did a horrible job of it. We were not very good at fulfilling that end of the deal. We might think, though, that God, a triune God, creates the world out of an overflow of love. Not to get love, but to give it it's almost maybe an intrinsic part of love that you want to share it with somebody else. Mm-hmm. Have you ever received the toy that you really, really like and what, the first thing you want to do, right, is tell everybody else about it? Mm-hmm. Hey, look what I've got. Look what it can do. And you become kind of like the sales advocate for that product. Or have you ever received good news but you couldn't tell anybody for like a week or two and you felt like the torture within yourself? Mm-hmm. There's this part of enjoying something that isn't really fulfilled until you've been able to share it with somebody else. Mm-hmm. Christian theologians envision creation in this way. God is so satisfied in himself that he wants to create something else, something completely other than himself, that then might be just as satisfied as he is. The Father loves the Son so much that he wants to create a race of human beings who love the Son just as much, who can see how good and beautiful and true the Son is, which has profound implications for our lives. You were not created, despite how you might feel sometimes, to be destroyed by God. You were not created to be the object of God's wrath. This is not his eternal plan for your life. You, we, creation, were created to receive God's love. To receive the overflow of the love within the Trinity. We are invited into the dance that's been happening for all of eternity. We read last week in Romans 8, we as Christians are adopted as sons and daughters of the Father. We become brothers and sisters of Christ. We receive the Spirit. We're participating in the life of the Trinity. We're invited into this this dance of love that God has experienced for all of eternity. God is revealed in the Trinity as true, as community, relationship. He's revealed as good, as loving. And God is also revealed as beautiful. If you have your scriptures, flip with me to Numbers chapter 14. Everyone's favorite book, the book of Numbers. Mathematicians get really excited here. Numbers 14. God is revealed in the Trinity as beautiful, and in particular, I want to point out, he's beautiful in lots of ways, but I want to point out his beauty in his patience, which is perhaps an overlooked attribute of God, or character trait of God, and perhaps we shouldn't overlook it as much as we do. Um, Numbers 14, we'll pick it up in verse 11. To give you some context, Israel is doing what they do best, and what you and I do best, which is rebel against God, okay? So they're making mistakes, we're making mistakes. And God is reacting. He's upset, again, because he cares so much about them and cares about his plan for the world through them. And so in verse 11, the Lord said to Moses, how long will this people despise me? How long will they not believe in me in spite of all the signs I've done among them? Can you see the frustration right on God's behalf? How long are they going to keep doing their own thing? Have I not proved myself to them over and over and over and over again? Um, He says, I will strike them with the pestilence and disinherit them. I will make of you a nation greater and mightier than they. So God says, you know what? I just want to start completely over with you, Moses. Let's get rid of all these people. And so you're going to see Moses intercede on the Israelites' behalf and try to um, convince God to go a different way, which is actually characteristic of God and Moses' relationship. Oftentimes the Israelites will screw up, and God will go, I'm going to kill all of them. And Moses will go, can we talk about this a little bit, God? And then they go on and move on with a new plan. If you look in verse thirteen, Moses says to the Lord, He intercedes on our behalf, much like perhaps Jesus intercedes on our behalf now. Then the Egyptians will hear of it, for you brought up this people in your might from among them, and they will tell the inhabitants of this land, they have heard that you, O Lord, are in the midst of this people. For you, O Lord, are seen face to face, and your cloud stands over them, and you go before them in a pillar of cloud by day and in a pillar of fire by night. Now, if you kill this people as one man, then the nations who have heard your fame will say, it is because the Lord was not able to bring his people into the land that he swore to give them, that he has killed them in the wilderness. So here's what Moses says to God. Hey, this might not be good for your reputation. You've kind of staked your reputation on this people group. Like in public, to everybody. And if they all die in the wilderness, people are going to talk. People are going to say, you are not actually able to bring them into the land. And so um, in verse 16, verse 17, and now Moses says, please let the power of the Lord be great as you have promised. God's going to be reminded of something he's already said to Moses. Moses says, you've already told me who you are, and so be true to this. The Lord, verse 18, is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love forgiving iniquity and transgression. But he will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation. Please pardon the iniquity of this people, according to the greatness of your steadfast love, just as you have forgiven this people from Egypt until now. I want to focus on this first description of God in verse 18. He says, The Lord is slow to anger. The Lord is slow to anger. Um, In old school English translations, this would have been the word long-suffering. The Lord is long-suffering. The Lord is patient. What happens when you take a triune God and a creation that rebels? Patience. An intense, profound amount of patience. And perhaps we don't always appreciate how slow God is to anger. Sometimes we read stories of God punishing people and we we might think God has a quick trigger finger. But if we actually were to think about creation and all the things that have occurred and are occurring, we might come to consider God's patience in in a bigger and more profound light. God, it does seem, is is profoundly um, patient with his creation. He's long-suffering with them. With Israel, with you and I, think of Jesus himself. Jesus himself is a very patient person doesn't even start his ministry until he's 30 years old i couldn't wait that long jesus is patient with people he doesn't really push and coerce people if they're not ready he just lets them go their way think about you and i are in a unique situation Two thousand years after jesus first coming think about how patient he has been since then perhaps more patient than we would be or than we would suggest him to be God is patient with his creation. He's long suffering. He's willing to let them go their own way, even though it might result in destruction, mistakes, and pain, even on his own part. Now, he knows their actions have consequences, right? But what we see in Jesus is God himself actually is going to bear the load of those consequences. He's slow to anger, and when that anger arises, he lets it go on himself. He's patient with his creation. God is not, the triune God is not overbearing and controlling. The triune God is patient and gentle. Any other picture of God is um, not a triune one, and thus we would say not a Christian one. This has big implications for our life if God is this patient, this long-suffering with us. The first implication is this. You need to be willing to receive God's patience towards you. And the second is you need to be willing to be patient with other people. And both of those are true, and both of those are things that I think we need to be reminded of often. Um, The spiritual life, spiritual growth, is often a crawl. It's not usually a race. It's usually like a kid growing. You can't really tell from day to day. You can tell from month to month, year to year, decade to decade, when you look back at a picture and go, wow, we were so young back then. But you don't notice it over the slow haul of each day. That's often how spiritual life works. We grow in our spiritual life, but it's not usually magnificent or grandiose, triumphant. It's a crawl. Oftentimes our spiritual growth is marked more by our falls than by our successes, like a child learning how to walk. And you and I need to be able to receive God's patience toward us. Sometimes our spiritual lives take the form of detours and scrapes and cuts and bruises. And this does not disrupt God's plan for creation. You have not thrown a wrench in God's eternal plan to redeem everything. No matter where you are right now, no matter what, you might be in the detour right now. He's ready and waiting for you to come back. He's patient with you. He's patient with us. We also perhaps need to be patient with ourselves. I would love to change the world. But there are days when I've become more convinced that perhaps my role in the world, in the the history of the world, will be to make a tiny, 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 (coughs) tiny, tiny tiny little dent in this one small part of the world. But that's enough. That when all God's people do that, we'll work into his plan. Be patient. We need to be patient with other people. We need to learn how to be patient with other people. I was on a uh, social networking type Uh, website the other day, and I saw a person comment on another person's page, and they were trying to encourage that person, and they meant to say God is in control, and what they said instead was God is control, which I thought was an interesting mistype. God is control, and and I kind of chuckled over it um, and thought that, in fact, actually this is how most of us probably think of God sometimes. Probably our (laughs) default picture of God is a God of control, just brute force, a God of will. A God who gets accomplished everything he wants to get accomplished. But this is not the God that the scriptures portray. The God that the scriptures portray is a God who's patient. You're only patient if things are not going your way. If you've given space for people to make their own mistakes. God is a God of patience, not control. But when we often default to a view of God where God is just brute control, we become people who are just brute control. Who are overbearing and controlling and want everyone to fit into our predetermined plan. And this can have negative consequences for us and for the world around us. I think you just have to look at the culture wars for a way that Christians perhaps haven't truly understood that we don't get to control the whole world. Sometimes other people have to make their own decisions, even if they're wrong decisions. And we have to learn to be okay with just being faithful ourselves. And not trying to think the whole world will come out of glue just because we don't get to make this decision. Or we're not the majority position on this issue or this or that topic. With other people in our lives, I think a lot of the times when we fall into sin, when we move into a space where we are acting unwisely, it's a space where we have lost our patience with somebody else. We're no longer able to allow them to make a mistake or allow them to scrape their knee, or allow them to grow at their own pace, or their own understanding, or their own knowledge. But we need to think back on how God has dealt with us. We all have detours, have had detours, will have detours. God is playing the long game with you. Can I clue you in on something? Who you are today, like in this moment, is a collection of all the choices and decisions and experiences you've had in your life so far. But who you are today does not define who you are as a person eternally. Yeah. For most of us, and again, we might, there is a little bit of urgency to life. Accidents can happen. Bad things can happen. But for most of us, you've got a lot more experiences and choices and decisions to make. Mm-hmm. And These will play just as an important part in defining who you are. And God's, God's okay if he has some doubts right now. I mean, it, it doesn't scare him. It doesn't keep him up at night. God's okay if, if you're making some bad decisions. Doesn't mean he likes it. But it's 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 really not it's really not making him shake. What am I gonna do? How will the world function if this one person is, is not making the right decisions in their life right now? No, he's patient. He's playing the long game. Over the trajectory of your life, he's working and bring people and situations to bear on your life that will change you and transform you into Christ's image. And you and I need to play the long game with people, with the people around us. And I think this would help us be ministers of the Word. This would help us share God's love with people. This would help us relate to other people. Instead of forcing our own growth on other people, or forcing our own knowledge on other people, we need to be able to, to accept people as they are, allow them to grow at their own pace. When to play the long game with other people. Um, I was a child uh, with problems. And so as a teacher now, when I encounter children with problems, um, it's easy for me to recognize there might be another day for this child. I might want to write this child off. But God didn't write me off. So I, I can't write them off. And when I meet someone who's making a lot of bad decisions... It doesn't scare me. It doesn't make me scared for the world. There's a lot of days to come. There's a lot of things to happen. So I just want to love. I just want to play my part. I want to build trust. Build a relationship. If God is patient, we need to learn to accept and receive that patience in our life. And then give that patience to the people around us. Now there's a flip side to God's patience, and that is Urgency. There's this sense that sometimes the longness or the bigness of our spiritual growth, how much we still have to go, can kind of paralyze us in the present. When we realize we still have so much to go, so much to, to grow in in our faith. Um, I think if most of us were to draw out a timeline of where a Christian should be after six months or after a year or after two years or 10 years or 20 years, we would not be where we should be on that timeline <laughs> I mean, we've taken a little bit slower than we thought we would take to get over this, or to conquer this, or maybe we haven't even started dealing with this, right? And we thought for sure, somebody who's been a Christian for 20 years would have gotten over this. We haven't even touched it yet. And sometimes it can paralyze us in the present. But God's patience will actually encourage us to act, to make that one small faithful step today that will pay dividends and bear fruit in the next year, in two years, and three years, and four years, and five years. Jesus' baptism, when he goes into the water and out of the water, it reveals to us a triune God. A triune God who's true. Who's good. Who's beautiful. It reveals to us a God who is in himself in relationship and community. Who's created us for relationship and community. It reveals a God who is good. Who is full of, overflowing with, defined by love. It shows us that we've been created to receive his love, to share his love. The triune God is revealed as someone who is beautiful, as one who is patient with us, with his creation. We're called to receive his patience, to share it with others. We're called to participate with the triune God, to dance with him, and to invite others to join the dance with us. We receive the Father's love. We follow the Son Jesus. We are empowered by his spirit as we go along the way. And this morning we are invited to the table. At the table, just like Jesus' baptism, I'd, I'd hope that the table is this moment of triune revelation where we remember and receive God as triune, as Father, Son, and Spirit. Where we remember that God is true and good and beautiful. And we remember the specific costs that it, it took from God to be good and true and beautiful. His life, his very own life he gave so that you and I might receive his love, so that you and I might be the beneficiaries of his patience, so that you and I might live life together and share God's life with the world around us. So at the table, I invite you to come worship and receive the love of the Triune God. Will you pray with me?